The Nonprofit Hour, a weekly look at Portland's nonprofits and do-gooders, with interviews, profiles, and documentaries. This is the Nonprofit Hour program here on X-Ray FM. The show is brought to us by the Media Institute for Social Change, a public interest media lab that works to inspire, empower, and engage emerging media producers. I'm Jason Dennington. In today's Nonprofit Hour show, we'll be hearing the last installment of our interviews about the intersection of nonprofit organizations and City Hall prior to the May 17th Oregon primary election. For our most recent Nonprofit Hour live show from the Waypost on Sunday, May 1st, we were pleased to welcome current City Commissioner Amanda Fritz to the stage, where she shared with us her thoughts about the direction Portland is moving, some areas where we can use improvement, and some stories of how nonprofits have worked in partnership with city government to solve some of our pressing problems. By now, you've likely received your ballot in the mail for the May 17th primary election. And if you're looking for resources to assist in your decision for choosing who to vote for, we've created an archive on SoundCloud of the candidates who have joined us on the Nonprofit Hour in the past weeks. We'd like to thank them and let you know you can hear the interviews on our SoundCloud 2016 Oregon primary playlist with Jules Bailey, Stuart Emmons, Chloe Udaly, Amanda Fritz, Sarah Iannarone, David Shore, and Fred Stewart. All of the interviews are also available as podcasts on Apple iTunes, and you can find links to both of these resources on our show page on the xray.fm website. We hope that these interviews will provide you with unique insights into the candidates' thoughts and plans for our city and will be a further aid to assist your personal decision of how to cast your votes for City Hall. Also at the last live show, we were joined by Aaron Robertson of Oregon Wild. He spoke with Phil Bussey about the humble beginnings of the organization, how he came to develop a passion for protecting wild areas, and the work that Oregon Wild has done to preserve natural streams, lakes, land, and air, which has been so vital to the protection of wildlife habitats, such as for that of the famous wolf OR7. We'll be hearing that in the second half of the show, but first we opened the show with live music from our new house band for the Nonprofit Hour, Irving.
This is Phil Bussey. It's the Nonprofit Hour, and that was Irving. I like that Irving's become sort of our de facto house band. Uh, this is your second performance for us? I believe it's the third. Our third performance. Uh, and we, at the first Sunday of every month, we have a live recording of our show at the Waypost on North Williams. And so happy to have Irving in here. Uh, Josh, Chris, and... and, and you guys are both uh, socially active, engaged people, right? Do you guys can, can have you want, you been is socially active or engaged? <laughs> we, we don't need to get into the darker secrets, but just um, is there is there a nonprofit you want to give a shout out to? Is there somebody in town you guys support? Chris, uh, Great Peninsula Conservancy in the Puget Sound, and uh, they are fully dedicated to preservation of the Kitsap Peninsula, the farmland, the wilderness. Um, my parents live up there, and it's truly a beautiful place that. Uh, truly deserves preservation and they work tirelessly to uh, ensure that that's happening and they constantly are buying up lands and putting it into trust so that's definitely my my favorite that and 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 that there was no setup for that because uh, our first guest is going to be from Oregon Wild uh, which is not necessarily conservancy but is is about preservation so absolutely there's a there's a, a few organizations like that throughout Oregon as well that are Buying up these chunks of land and just holding them for the greater good. Yes. Yeah. And uh, Chris is on on the drums. Josh is on the bass. Josh, anyone that you want a nonprofit you want to give a shout out to? I like the Urban Farm Collective here in Portland. And and what do they do? These guys have uh, different plots of land all over the city, like some as big as an acre, some is like half a backyard, and different uh, crops, sort of permaculture-based, grow in each of these things. They bring it all together up at the church on Alberta and for, uh, crap, I'm forgetting. Uh, I'm forgetting the name, but. Crap is actually one of the words you can say on the radio. Well, FCC's okay they, with that. I'll tell you what they don't do is a crappy job. They're awesome. <laughs> They're called the Urban Farm Collective. I'm totally boofing it, but I, I dig these guys. Josh and Chris are the two-member Irving band, and we will hear from them later in the show. Our house band, Irving, thank you guys so much. We're thrilled to have our next guest, Amanda Fritz, uh, on, on the show, and um, welcome, Amanda. Thank you. Uh, Amanda, you're running for city council again. This, is, this will be your third term. Yes. You, and, and you're not getting tired of this? I'm getting tired of campaigning. <laughs> it's been a long several months, but uh, no, I'm really dedicated to serving the people of Portland. Yeah, and we're excited to have you as a guest. Uh, your name comes up often in interviews that we have with nonprofits of somebody at City Hall that is supporting um, public services, uh, the good work that nonprofits are doing. Um, one of the things that, that at least is uh, certainly part of your campaign, housing is an important item that you put forward. Uh, you are calling it though houselessness, not homelessness. Can you d describe the difference that you see? Yeah, Right to Dream 2 is the group that has helped me understand this, and this is really how I got fully engaged. Of course, I haven't been the housing commissioner at any time in the seven years that I've been on the council, and currently the mayor is taking the lead on many of these issues. I was put in charge of the Bureau of Development Services back in 2013, and the first thing I did was say, well, we're not going to fine Right to Dream 2 for being in a place where they're safe and they're keeping people safe. So they have helped me understand that we refer to houseless rather than homeless because for one people say home is where the heart is and so if you refer to people as homeless it may infer that they don't have a heart but more particularly 
uh, the people who are living outside, most of them have been Portlanders for a very long time. 80% uh, of the people who are living outside right now have been in Multnomah County for two years or more. So it's not that they don't have a home. Portland is their home. They don't have a house over their head, a roof over their head. And so I think that by using that somewhat awkward term, it helps me and others remember that these people are our neighbors, that they are not um, for the large part, people coming in from elsewhere seeking the bounty of the taxpayers of Portland. They're people who are on hard times and, and often by no fault of their own are experiencing not having a home. You seem so nice. Why, why would anyone want to run against you? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's, it's helpful in a democracy to have people uh, who are wanting to get their messages out. One of the people who is running against me is David Morrison, who is very concerned about the safety of Wi-Fi and microwaves. And I've learned a lot from him in this campaign. He's, he really has an interesting message. I hope you'll have him on this show in the future to talk about some of the things that we can do to keep ourselves safe now that we're all addicted to using our cell phones all the time. And, and um, I want to go back and start talking about, and, and apologize if I, I use the term homelessness. I thought your description of why to call it houselessness is, is apt, but creature habit, I may fall back into that. I, it, houselessness has become much more visible in the last year in Portland, or it seems to have become much more visible in Portland, and I think there's been a lot of concern about it and recognition. However, can you talk about some of the things that are going right with providing housing um, for for working class or for, for people in, in Portland area? Yeah, we, we've gotten 12,000 people into housing. We've gotten uh, every veteran who was houseless at the beginning of uh, this year is, of, of last year, is now in a, in a home. You know, the challenge is that with rents going up, with housing prices going up, for every $100 increase in rent, 15% more people are at risk of becoming houseless. So we can't keep up in the current market. And that's really challenging. But, but one of the things that's going well is that we do have a coordinated plan with Multnomah County, which we've been working on very hard for the last two years, to look at what works, what's cost effective, what is wise use of taxpayers' money, so that we're not continuing to put money into services that don't work. And so we have a plan. We need to figure out even more how to fund it. And we're current, the council is currently working with the county to put millions more dollars into housing. So those are the things that are going right. The other thing I think that's two things that are going right. First of all, people in Portland are now very much aware that we have a housing crisis. This has been a housing crisis over the last seven years uh, during the recession. And the third thing that's going right is that people who have to live outside are becoming organized. They are have finding their voice, they are not willing to be hiding in Washington Park and Forest Park and in the nether regions of the city. And they are very much visible and they are saying, you know, we are here. Many of them are saying we want to be part of the solution. So they are working together like Right to Dream too, to organize themselves, to be safe, to be kind, to be, as I say, part of the solution. And so those are some of the things that are going right. When I started working with Right to Dream 2 in 2013, there was a huge outcry when we, the first time that we tried to find a new location where they could be in a permitted legal um, rest area and help people who also need to be sheltered overnight and during the day. Over the course of time, now, Many people recognize that Right to Dream 2 is part of the solution, and they recognize that there are people living outside who 
um, are not criminals, they're not mentally ill, they're not drug addicted, they are simply people who need housing. And, and, and when you first started that answer, you said we have gotten 12,000 people into, into houses. I want to break that down a little bit more about who is the we. Obviously, it's, it's City Hall, it's City Bureaus, it's Multnomah County Services. Um, can you also roll in some nonprofits? This is the Nonprofit Hour and, and talk about who some of, the, some of those uh, organizations are that are doing good work. Yeah, I often use the pronouns we and ours. A lot of what we do is a team effort, and, and politicians traditionally, I had to get coached to start off with it. I have to use I a lot more. But nobody is able to solve all the problems by themselves. So yes, it's the government entities of the city, the county, and Home Forward, formerly the Housing Authority of Portland. It's also valued nonprofits like the Community Alliance of Tenants, like Sisters of the Road, like Street Roots, uh, like Right to Dream too. It's all of our community and, and many people who care about finding solutions for people who have few choices. And w where does that responsibility start and where does it end in terms of City Hall's responsibility and then other organizations that are uh, not governmental agencies? It, it has to be a partnership. Government can't do it all, government shouldn't do it all. And yet, and neither should nonprofits, churches, other faith communities be relied upon to provide the public services that, in fact, everybody wants. You know, I've gotten thousands of emails over the past few months, uh, stimulated by the Portland Business Alliance, saying Portland can do better. Well, yes, we can, and doing better takes more funding. So, where is that going to come from? How are we, again, we, going to work together? And I'm getting a lot more emails saying, I want to be part of the solution. You tell me what we can do to help. As, as somebody who has uh, seen a lot and thought a lot about housing issues in Portland, are you optimistic or pessimistic about what the next couple years will bring? I'm optimistic because we have this coordinated plan, because the city and the county and Home Forward are recognizing that we need to work with our nonprofits, we need to work with our neighborhood associations and our other community partners within the Office of Neighborhood Involvement to have everybody be part of the discussions about what are the appropriate solutions. I took a lot of heat uh, six months or so ago saying that every neighborhood should be looking at what services need to be provided. And I was misquoted a lot on that. What I actually said was there are people living outside in every neighborhood in this city, including mine. And where would we, should we be providing services, you know, even simple things like dumpsters and porta potties to provide a basic human dignity, to provide people the opportunity to organize themselves and to be in a respectful um, to the neighborhood environment while they wait for housing. Because there's a myth that people who are living outside don't want services, and it, whereas in fact, most of them are, are on waiting lists, and even for families, the waiting list is weeks to months. And for people who are single, it's months to years for the waiting list. Yeah, I know you've talked a lot about uh, quote-unquote basic services and emphasize, I think for maybe a, a, a portion of Portlandians, uh, that means maybe a good coffee and short lines for Sunday brunch, but that obviously is, is something, you're saying that's something different and that's something that City Hall as well as a lot of these nonprofits can provide. Yes, and we... We have, over the course of the recession and the seven years that I've been on the council, we have looked at the budget to provide basic maintenance, to provide basic services like streets, sidewalks, uh, traffic lights that work, and housing. And, and now I think we need to get into that conversation of what does public housing look like, what does having um, strategies in place 
to, so that people don't lose their apartment if they suddenly have an unexpected car repair that's necessary or that they are in between jobs? How do we provide rent assistance so, so that uh, people stay housed rather than becoming um, unhoused and then have, have seek much more services. I want to switch gears a little bit and, and, and talk to you more as a, a, a bit more as a candidate right now. Um, if re-elected um, and you could cherry pick the three bureaus that you want, what, what three would those be? Well, the two that I have now, I really love. Parks, I passed the Fix Our Parks bond measure in 2014. Uh, it passed with the highest approval rating of any parks bond in history and I was really proud of that. I worked very hard on it. And so I want to be able to finish up the projects that that $68 million will buy. So that's certainly something that I will be advocating for. The Office of Neighborhood Involvement has always been near and dear to my heart. I was a neighborhood board member for 17 years before I was elected. And so the mayor took that bureau for two and a half years, and I'm really happy to have it back. The one that I think goes best with those two as a partner is the Bureau of Emergency Management. Traditionally, the mayor has kept the emergency management. He, uh, mayor Hales assigned it to Commissioner Novick. Commissioner Novick has done a fantastic job, so I'm not in at all saying that he hasn't. I would like to work with uh, parks and neighborhood involvement to look at how do we organize communities around emergency preparedness rather than our traditional models of either parks being um, more than fun and games, for sure, as, as Charles Jordan said, um, and, and yet seen mostly as something that's frivolous or um, that's for healthy exercise. How do we look at crime prevention instead of neighborhood watches, which are kind of scary, let's look who's in our neighborhood and keep them out. Um, how could we maybe organize people through emergency management and a greater understanding that when the big one hits, we're gonna be on our own for three weeks, not three days, and we better be ready to do that. I, I'd like to pass on a funny story that happened at a can Canada event last week in East Portland. I was mentioning this concept of doing crime prevention, going away from crime prevention, um, but I talked about neighborhood watches where you organize your neighbors so that you know if somebody seems odd and you would call that in. And somebody said, well, I live on Hawthorne. We call in if people don't seem odd. <laughs> <laughs> well was, said, well that said. That was cute. <laughs> um, I just want to round out our conversation by going back to the beginning for you. So you, going back in history, you ran under the public finance system, um, which was a fantastic system if you received five dollar donations from a hundred registered voters. It was actually a thousand. Uh, for, for, sorry, from a thousand. Yeah. Uh, you then received a hundred fifty, hundred thousand to run your campaign for the primaries and then and then another additional, I believe, two hundred thousand for the general election. Yeah, it was it was a thousand donations of five dollars from registered Portland voters in 2008 and then you got a hundred and fifty thousand of public money for the primary, two hundred thousand for the runoff. It means that every day I remember that I'm beholden to all the taxpayers of Portland for my election and so I, I think that that's a good premise. That system was one that Portlanders very rapidly learned to either game or know how to to work. I'm currently having some discussions with community partners to see what would a new public campaign finance system look like. We're just looking at what would it be at this point, not knowing when we might go for um, getting a new system enacted, but it would probably be something more like New York City and Montgomery County, Maryland, which is more of a matching fund, so a six to one match for small donations, a smaller match for larger donations, a cap on donations, and other rules for good governments so that people could have much more confidence that 
corporations are not people, money is not speech, and, and elections cannot be bought by the highest bidder. So that's uh, part of what I'm passionate about and want to get reelected for so that I can really focus on how could we make it so that some of the good candidates who are currently running for Portland City Council and good candidates who are running for state legislature, for judges, for all kinds of different positions, how can they focus on getting, talking to voters and letting people know what they want to do rather than having to fundraise, spend so much of their time fundraising? Amanda Fritz is a two-time city council member and is in, currently in her campaign for her third term. Uh, you have a song to take us out. I do, but first, I, would, I thought you were going to ask me about my favorite nonprofits. So if I might oh, I, absolutely, yes. So I, I, I please. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the, my two favorite nonprofits, um, beyond those that the city contracts with, which of course are all my favorite, um, are uh, the National Alliance on Mental Illness and Lines for Life, which is a suicide prevention hotline available 24-7 and uh, manned by volunteers. Thank you for the applause in the background here. I was a psychiatric nurse for 22 years before I was elected. I worked at OHSU. The city isn't responsible for mental health care services, but a lot of our adverse interactions between police um, and community members who end up getting shot are people experiencing mental illness. So for the first time, you know, you asked if I'm optimistic about housing. For the first time in the 30 years that I've been in Portland, I am optimistic we could actually set up a mental health care system that would actually work. I'm particularly excited that sh uh, Dr. Sharon Myron is running from Multnomah County Commission, and she has been on the board of the Unity Center that's looking to set up a one-stop place for emergency management for folks experiencing mental illness. So I think that that's a really um, great, optimistic thing to look forward to, that nonprofits are going to be partnering with government entities, both the city and the county, and the um, major hospitals, which I think is another category of nonprofit that we have to talk about at some point. And so I, I wanted to mention that. It actually ties into my song that I'm asking you to, that we're going to be fading out to, and that is Storm Large singing Stand Up For Me. And I saw Storm Large perform Crazy Enough, her one-woman show talking about her family's struggle with mental illness. And she has been incredibly supportive to me since my husband was killed um, in September of 2014. Um, she epitomizes, I think, the best of Portland in terms of uh, being an amazing performer who goes all over the world sharing her talents and then coming back to Portland being totally grounded, giving a lot of her time and talent to nonprofits in their fundraisers. And so I honor Storm by having this song played as well as um, appreciating being invited to come here. Thank you. Amanda Fritz, thank you for all the great work on City Council and good luck with the campaign. Thank you. Stand up for me And we'll stand together I'm the sky above you And I love you, everyone Stand up for me For your great-grandmother For your father
If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Nonprofit Hour from the Media Institute for Social Change on X-Ray FM. To become a supporting member of the Media Institute and find out more about their work, you can visit MediaMakingChange.org. Members receive annual benefits and support programs such as the Nonprofit Hour and their summer documentary program. The Nonprofit Hour is also brought to you in part by generous support from Pacific Continental Bank and BusinessWorks. Find out more at therightbank.com or businessworkspdx.com. One of the other programs that the Media Institute offers is called Radio U. The program is a multi-week course for small groups of students desiring to learn the art and science of audio documentary production. The education is delivered by professionals working in the field while at no cost to the students. They learn how to select subjects for their work, contact interviewees and conduct interviews, record, edit, and process the audio material, and in the end result, produce a complete piece which profiles a local organization. Next up is one of these documentaries created by Radio U graduate Eric Tegetov. In the past few years... Portland has entered a new era. It's an era of urban growth, and that's partly because of transplants. I'm not excluding myself here. With that growth comes a changing landscape. You've probably noticed it. There are new buildings up and down every major street here. It's easy to understand why some native Portlanders might be weary of the 20 and 30-somethings flocking in. After all, what are we doing if not paving over a piece of Portland history every time we build a new apartment complex? But this era of urban growth we're in, it can also be the era of urban renewal. We can save the sacred monuments to our history. The Tabor Space program is doing just that, turning the historic Mount Tabor Presbyterian Church into a gathering place for the community. Let's go back to the history of the church. The Mount Tabor Presbyterian Church set down its stones at Belmont and 55th in 1910. For some historical perspective, that's the same year the Hawthorne Bridge was built, and it's the longest surviving bridge in Portland. One century and a few major additions later, you had the 36,000-square-foot church of today. Give or take a few bumps. 1999-ish, the building was condemned. And what had happened is that the foundation was crumbling in places. As it was becoming unstable from the foundation, the walls, like the wall of the coffee house, was actually tipping out toward the street. It was getting ready to fall down. That's Pastor Carly Friesen. She's been with the church for 14 years. Even in the early days, Pastor Carly thought the enormous church was underutilized. She envisioned a coffee shop in the oldest part of the church. And for the rest of it, she imagined a space where all members of the community could meet, not just the members of her congregation. Um, The thing that I find amazing, and I'm finding it all over the place, uh, is that the ancient traditions of sacred spaces were that they were community places. The community did everything there. It was their court space, it was their uh, 
family gathering space, it was their worship space, it was their bed and breakfast place. The sanctuaries had many purposes. Tabor Space's program director, Lauren Muma. I mean, I was really drawn to the church because it's so beautiful. You know, the craftsmanship is gorgeous and it feels really inspiring and peaceful in this space. Right when I walked in the first time, I just like, this building is special and it would be a beautiful community gathering place. Through Lauren and Pastor Carly's cooperative vision, Tabor Space was founded in 2008. Carly thought a coffee shop would be the open door to the community. Soon, neighbors were meeting in the commons area over lattes. The church is now a hub of activity, hosting nearly 5,000 events a year. There are yoga classes, writers' workshops, and meetings every Tuesday of pint-sized Picassos. I'm all done. I don't know how to write my name. Carly noticed the church had a heartbeat again, and the congregation noticed people sitting in the sanctuary, quietly reflecting. There were young people carried away from their modern distractions. There was something inspiring about this space that everyone could feel. Though maybe not as spiritual as our parents' generation, the millennial generation, that is my generation, understands the importance of churches. There is something alive inside them, something ineffable. It is in the very woodwork and architecture of beautiful places like Mount Tabor Presbyterian Church. And Tabor Space isn't just renewing the building, it's renewing the idea of what churches can be. Just the grandness of the chapel and the stained glass windows and the really high ceilings. You, know, you walk in and you can spend time in the sanctuary or in the coffee house in the original chapel and be really inspired and feel, I think, connected to something larger than yourself, whether that's the like, beautiful space just being so grand or being connected to a spiritual connection that is true for you is what is living on through opening it to the community, even though they're not becoming members of the Presbyterian Church. Thanks to Jim Day. He's playing the organ you're hearing right now. And a special thanks to Maddie Goldsmith, the events coordinator at Tabor Space, and my girlfriend. For the Nonprofit Hour, I'm Eric Teganoff. We now return to our last Nonprofit Hour live show from the Waypost with a song from our house band Irving, followed by Phil Bussey speaking with Aaron Robertson of Oregon Wild.
Our first guest, Aaron Robertson, is the communication coordinator for Oregon Wild. Welcome, Aaron. Hello. So, I, Aaron, I, I like this. Uh, your Oregon Wild's mission is, in part, uh, you, you help provide a voice for the wildlands, the wildlife, and waters that don't routinely go about hiring their own PR firms, giving interviews, or posting to social media accounts. That may not be the official, but I, I, I did see that posted somewhere. Yeah, that's, that's in my personal bio. That was my, my long walks on the beach and <laughs> um, enjoying soda and going to the movies type description of, of me on the website that I had to write myself. So it's like writing a dating profile. <laughs> and, and growing up, did you, did, was one of your favorite books, uh, Who Will Speak for the Lorex? It was actually not, although uh, both of my parents worked for the Forest Service, so um, it easily could have been. But um, it, it was strange having uh, parents that worked for the Forest Service because they spent all their time out in the forest. And then so as a kid, they didn't especially want us to go out because that was their job. So I didn't actually start uh, spending time in the wild until I was in college. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I, I, w I want to uh, talk a little bit more about how you got engaged in this, but let's, let's uh, get to that through talking about Oregon Wild first. Absolutely. And, and a little bit more about their mission is or it's, it's protect protecting an enduring legacy. What, what does that mean? One of the things that Oregon Wild uh, is really centered around is protecting public lands. We were founded over 40 years ago as the this Oregon Wilderness Coalition that was actually some hippies in Eugene getting together with elk hunters on the east side of the state and realizing that uh, elk habitat was disappearing and we wanted to preserve more old growth habitat. We wanted to create more wilderness spaces, places that would be preserved for future generations, for animals and for quiet recreation. Um, and we kind of came together around that idea. The, the mission has kind of expanded somewhat. Um, we're not just based around wilderness right now, but also based around the things that need wilderness type habitat to survive, whether that be fish, whether that be the spotted owl, whether that be wolves, um, and also the clean water that we depend on uh, to drink. Yeah, I just want to hover on that origin story a little bit longer because I mean that, that is interesting that you're talking about hippies and elk hunters getting together and I, I would have to imagine that would have been a very interesting meeting. Those are two different cultures coming together, but for a, for a shared idea. I, I think that there's the perception that, that they're different cultures, and, and, you know, 40 years is a long time to kind of have those, those communities develop differently. In, uh, but back in the 70s, it wasn't so strange an idea to have these groups coming together. And, and, and just uh, some of the numbers, uh, can you throw them out or uh, 1.7 million acres of wilderness and, and do you have that, can you roll that off the top of your head? I cannot. <laughs> I mean, but it's, it's I'm not, a, I'm not a, the numbers don't stick in my head, I'm not a numbers guy. I mean, but tens of thousands of acres of forest in the Bull Run, mm -hmm. uh, Little Sandy Watershed, which is Portland's water supply, mm -hmm. uh, 1,800 miles of wild and scenic rivers. Um, I, I also wonder though, does Oregon Wild have a little bit of attention deficit disorder? You guys seem to be protecting water and then protecting streams and then you protect the wolves and then you're in DC lobbying. Is it, is it, do you go where the alarm bells are loudest? Uh, yes, um, that is a good springing off point for one of our more recent campaigns and that is on state forest rule reform. Um, there were, there have been concerns about uh, industrial forest land, aerial spraying of pesticides. It was getting in people's water, people were being poisoned, there was a lot of runoff. 
And these communities in rural Oregon were trying to go to the legislature, trying to make their voices heard, and they were having difficulty doing that. And because of sort of them starting the ball rolling and that becoming one of those alarm bells going off, we have kind of taken that up as one of our campaigns uh, to strengthen those protections for their health and for their water, um, but also in terms of landslides from clear cuts, um, protecting fish, it all kind of ties together. So that's an example of the alarm bell and us going where we think that there's a big need. Um, is, is there a, a biggest enemy that you guys fight against? I mean, do you guys have a nemesis? Most superheroes have some sort of arch enemy. Does, does Oregon Wild or who do you, who, what do you see you're fighting most against? We uh, clash a lot with the clear cutting industry. I don't think that would surprise anyone. Um, there are definitely uh, different ways that we view the purpose of public lands. Uh, so in terms of, are we measuring their success in terms of board feet? Or are we thinking more about habitat, clean water, clean air, quiet recreation? And I think that's where those two ideologies really clash is we embrace you know, protect, saving the best of what's left in terms of old growth and setting that aside. But also when it comes to our more active forest lands, recovering those to uh, so that they have those other values rather than just harvesting them, waiting for them to grow, replanting them with the same species, and then going all over again. I mean, and that has to be a difficulty that Oregon Wild has, is that environmentalism is a spectrum. Mm -hmm. There are the preservationists, there's the conservationists, um, there's people that be believe that you can use nature without harming it or that it is there for, for use, And but you guys are, are, are a little bit further down the spectrum in terms of preservation. Is that fair to say? We have our wilderness program, so one of the things that we're trying to do is protect uh, uh, roadless areas around Crater Lake. Um, so these are areas that have not been logged before, that still have some old growth, um, and inside the park itself. And the proposal doesn't take away any roads or anything like that, but designating that as wilderness, which means you can't come in and log it. Um, but we are also involved or across the state in what are called uh, forest collaboratives, which are environmentalists and timber companies and the Forest Service or the BLM getting together and talking about, well, what what is a project that tries to satisfy everyone's needs in terms of restoring uh, streams and um, creating healthy forests that provide some timber as well as restores some of the ecological function of forests that have been previously harvested? Aaron Robertson is the communication coordinator for Oregon Wild. I want to switch gears a little bit uh, and talk a little bit about you and how you got involved in this. Before we get there, though, I, I saw in your bio, you have a hedgehog? I do have a hedgehog, Aria. It was a whim. <laughs> I don't think it's, it's not common that people have hedgehogs. I think people understand the difference between having a schnauzer and a golden retriever and, and a cat. What's, what's Most a people want a pet that you can snuggle with and will give you physical affection, not one that has evolved to reject it explicitly. Um, so is, is, is having a hedgehog uh, part of it, is that a defining insight into who you are or is that just a happenstance? It's a happenstance. Fair enough, fair enough. And so you came to this job for uh, six years after being with uh, Representative Earl Blumenauer. Um, he's one of the good guys. 
Oh, absolutely. Uh, Earl's been a great champion on many of our issues. He helped uh, protect uh, big swaths of the Mount Hood National Forest as a wilderness back in 2009. He's right now um, a big supporter of the Owyhee, which one of our partner groups, the Oregon Natural Desert Association, is working to protect in eastern Oregon. Um, and we're working with him on some uh, unfinished business in the Mount Hood area that didn't make it into that 2009 legislation. He was also one of those guys that stood up during, uh, some people may have been familiar with a little thing that happened in the Malheur Wildlife Refuge. Um, some people uh, challenging the very idea of national public lands. And he was one of uh, the folks that we had here in Oregon that really forcefully uh, stood up for not only the idea of public lands, but also law and order. <laughs> did did uh, working for Earl Bloom, uh, Blumenauer ever inspire you to wear a bow tie? Uh, you kind of wanted to avoid wearing a bow tie because two guys wearing a bow tie in an office, really, you can only have one, right? <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. So uh, you have a song? Hockey Monkey by the Zambonis. It was chosen because it was my favorite to play when I was at a college radio station. All the scientists are running around looking for the monkey, but he can't be found because he's down by the pond playing hockey. Robertson is the communication coordinator for Oregon Wild. And so early, you, you had talked about your, your parents both worked in the Forest Service, um, but that necessarily wasn't your entry into environmentalism? Um, it was a girl. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, was doing a previous job where I worked for a children's theater, and I met someone who was hiking the entire Appalachian Trail. And for those of you who are not familiar with that, that is a trail that goes from Georgia to Maine uh, the entire way. And like the Pacific Crest Trail we have and the Continental Divide in the middle of the country going through the Rockies. Um, and she invited me to go with her and for some sections. So I did a, a couple hundred miles of that, having never done multi-day backpacking and absolutely fell in love with spending time in the wild and the outdoors. And that really 
in, that stuck with me and inspired me and when I had the opportunity to come and, and work to give other people those opportunities and protect those places uh, at Oregon Wild, I took it. And, and, and you worked with uh, uh, Outdoor School for a while, is that correct? I did as well. I, I worked for Outdoor School uh, teaching the high schoolers how to teach the sixth graders about uh, environmental science, environmental ethics. I, I mean, there, there seems to be a theme. I hope that I'm not pushing this too hard on you, but it's, it's that this idea of moving things down the generations in terms of environmental stewardship. Is that, does that seem fair? Absolutely. Um, the, the, the job that I mentioned before, I, was, I, I taught theater, so I was helping kids and moving on to helping kids understand nature so that they uh, understand its value, again, beyond just what we can take out of it as an extractive industry in terms of harvest, but also what, what it means for other things beside us, so the animals and clean water and air. And I, I want to round out our conversation here and talk about wolves and, and a lot of what uh, it sounds like Oregon Wild has done in part is obviously to protect the, the, the land and the areas, but you're also addressing that uh, through some specific species. It's, um, most people are aware of OR7, um, the famous wandering wolf, the first wolf to disperse from eastern Oregon and step foot in California, and that was the first wolf in California in 70 years. Um, and it's interesting if you look at the where OR7 traveled, it was the last places where we hadn't gone in and messed things up, put in too many roads or done too much timber harvest. So you can watch him go from Eastern Oregon and kind of follow this, this trail that's kind of, that overlaps with the things that we're trying to preserve. So when we're talking about wolves and wildlife, they depend on uh, these places that we're trying to protect. And there was, uh, or someone was a great example of following exactly those places uh, when he went down into California. Is it a harder sell to, in terms of uh, getting public support for preservation, is it a harder sell when you're talking about a wolf or when you're talking about a forest? They both have their ups and downs. They both have their um, uh, detractors. So when we're talking about saving a place, you know, there are people that would like to log a place or would like to claim a place and sell it off so they can log it. In, in terms of wolves, it's a little more complicated because wolves are wild animals and there are conflicts with wild animals, especially with the livestock industry. So at different times, <laughs> the, each can be a challenge and in different ways. Aaron Robertson is the communications coordinator for Oregon Wild, and you guys have some out upcoming events, or you guys have routine events that you want to give a plug for? Yeah, we'll uh, be announcing in the this month, uh, we do seasonal hike um, hikes that people can sign up for. We uh, do those both out of our Portland office, but also out of Eugene and Bend, so people can sign up for our mailing list, and they'll see lists of those opportunities. We're also having a uh, one of our programs is the Oregon Brew Shed Alliance, which is where we're teaming up with breweries across the state to help emphasize the um, connection between clean water and public lands and great beer. So we're actually having a brew shed brew fest coming up. Oh, now um, you have my attention. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, no, that's the that's one of the cool things that we're doing is trying to find things that other things that people are passionate about. There are many people that are passionate about hiking and, and the outdoors, but we also really like beer. So ha uh, kind of drawing the connection between those two things is something that the brew shed's working on. Um, 
Aaron, thank you so much for talking to us. Uh, how about a song to take us out? It's gonna be Duran Duran's Hungry Like the Wolf. <laughs>
We've now come to the end of this week's Nonprofit Hour show. The show has been produced and edited by myself, Jason Dennington, and is recorded at the production studios of X-Ray FM and live segments at The Waypost on North Williams. You can follow us on Facebook or via our Twitter handle, at Nonprofit Hour, and find archives of past shows on our SoundCloud page or podcasts on the Apple iTunes Store. If you'd like to make a comment or suggestion about an organization we should profile on a future show, please send an email to nph at mediamakingchange.org. We'd like to thank our guests on the show this week, City Commissioner Amanda Fritz and Aaron Robertson of Oregon Wild, Radio U producer Eric Tegatoff, and another guest that joined us at our latest live show at the Waypost, Elise Downing of Sisters of the Road. Keep listening to future episodes of the Nonprofit Hour to catch the broadcast of the full interview we conducted with her. We'd also like to thank the Media Institute for Social Change, our regular hosts Phil Bussey and Julie Falk, KXRY Radio X-Ray FM, our supporters Pacific Continental Bank and Business Works, and most of all to you, our regular listeners. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you have a great week and join us again next week at noon on Monday for the Nonprofit Hour Show.